the French way, the original way, and the Portuguese way. This week, we're walking the Camino de Santiago. Traveling the world to bring you delicious dishes, tasty beverages, and interesting experiences. This is the Destination Eat Drink Podcast on the Radio Misfits Podcast Network. I'm Brent Peterson. Welcome to Destination Eat Drink, the travel podcast for foodies. Each week, we travel the world and sample that place's dishes and drinks. And this week, we're taking a pilgrimage along the Camino de Santiago with Nick Leonard. Nick is a world traveler based in Lisbon with his wife, Wendy. In fact, Wendy's been on the show talking about India That was episode 106 of the podcast. In addition to their world travels, Nick, along with Wendy, has a podcast and website called Spirit of the Camino about the Camino de Santiago. Nick and Wendy have hiked several of the Caminos, so he's the perfect person to talk about the Camino de Santiago. He tells me about crazy suntans, unexpected eucalyptus plantations, foraging for figs along the trail, and the symbolism of the scallop shell. Plus, we talk about what to eat on the Camino and the Tarte de Santiago you can get when you finally come to the end and finish your trip. But first, we've got lots of new listeners to the show lately, so if you enjoy it, please be sure to subscribe. That way you'll get the show each Friday when we drop a new episode. And tell a friend, too. Destination Eat Drink. Nick, welcome to the podcast. Thanks for taking the time today. You know, I want to talk first about the Camino de Santiago just in general, because I think a lot of folks listening to the podcast, maybe they have heard of it before, or maybe they don't even know what it is at all. So for people who don't know what the Camino is, how do you describe it to them? Well, thank you for having me. And that's a very interesting question. I mean, it's a very basic question, but it's kind of a hard one to answer sometimes because walking the Camino de Santiago, it's not really like anything else that I've ever done. Uh, it's not like regular travel, although there are elements of that in it. There's obviously a, a sort of a cultural and historic aspect to it where you're visiting these old churches and other buildings like that. Uh, it's also, there's obviously hiking in it, but it's not hiking in the normal sense where you're in the wilderness, when you're in the mountains, um, because it's a village to village walk. And so that's kind of the first thing that I would say is that it, it's different from anything else. Um, it, you know, has elements of religion and spirituality. It has elements of uh, culture and tourism. It has elements of outdoors and well-being. And so it's kind of all of these things uh, thrown together. And so that's what makes it really appealing to a lot of people is that no matter what your background is or what you're interested in, you can probably get something really meaningful out of the Camino de Santiago. What I didn't know before I listened to your podcast, Nick, was that there are several different routes of the Camino de Santiago. It's not just one path that everyone takes. They're scattered throughout Spain, France, and Portugal. And I I just knew about the one Camino de Santiago. Can you maybe briefly talk about some of the different routes and maybe how they're different from each other? Yeah, absolutely. Uh, and so, you know, what you've described is what a lot of people think and what I thought at one point as well, that there's just this one route. And this is the so-called Camino Frances. So the French way, it's a little bit of an unusual name because it's 99% of it in Spain, even though it's called the French way. Um, but it starts, right. the kind of modern starting point is a village in France, uh, France called Saint-Jean-Pierre-de-Port. And it's 
right at the foot of the Pyrenees Mountains on the French side, and then on the first day, you walk over onto the Spanish side, and then you continue across northern Spain after that. And so it's called the French Way because it begins in France, but really in, in its sort of medieval sense, a lot of the routes through France converged at this one spot, and so that's kind of how it got that name, that people coming ultimately from France uh, would take this route. And so this is the main route. Uh, it accounts for about 50 or slightly over 50% of all of the people who walk the Camino de Santiago take this main route. Um, but like you said, there are several others, and actually that's understating it. There are dozens of others. Um, and so within those other ones, there are several that are also, you know, reasonably popular, not at the level of the Camino Frances. And then there are others that are very remote um, and that hardly anybody does, but they're technically there, they're waymarked, and they're recognized as official routes. So a couple of the other more popular ones, uh, there's a route called the Camino Primitivo, meaning the original way. And this is in the north west of Spain in Asturias and Galicia. And it's called this because the very first pilgrim to Santiago was the king of Asturias, Alfonso II. This is in the ninth century. And he went to verify the discovery of the remains of the apostle James, Santiago. And then once he had done that, it then became this sort of pilgrimage center. So he's recognized as the first pilgrim from all the way back in 814. And so you can walk this and we've walked this route as well, the Camino Primitivo. Um, one of the other popular ones is the Portuguese Camino, and that starts from Lisbon, where I live, and goes north to Santiago. And we just walked this a couple of months ago, and we were really lucky to fit it in during a period in a pandemic where there was a bit of a break and where the second wave hadn't hit Europe yet, and it was safe to do it. Um, and there are a few other routes as well. So, you know, there are a lot of people who have done many, many, many routes. Some people will do the Camino Frances over and over again. Other people will choose different routes, you know, every year do something different. Um, so, yeah, there is really something for everyone. Now, you mentioned uh, St. James and the relics of St. James. And I think this would probably be a good time to talk about why there is a Camino de Santiago. You talk about all these different routes, Nick, but they all end in one town, the Santiago de Campostela. And... To tell us about the reason why this is the end point for the Caminos. Yeah, it's a little bit wrapped up in, in some myth and legend, perhaps, but this is uh, one of the apostles of Jesus, uh, James, and it's said that his that he came and, and preached in this area, and then later he was uh, martyred in Jerusalem, and then posthumously his body was taken by boat back to Spain and back to Galicia, where, uh, where he had preached previously. And he had two disciples uh, of his own, and they took his body posthumously um, back, and then you know, then it sort of became lost or, or, or the story became lost a little bit. And then um, related to what I mentioned earlier, then in the early 9th century, or perhaps at the very end of the 8th century, it said that his remains were discovered again. And then a church was built on that site. And then that became the city of Santiago de Compostela. And this is where the termination is of all of these Caminos. You said that recently you did, a couple months ago, during a lag in lockdowns, during a time when you could actually go out, that you did the Portuguese way, which starts in Lisbon and goes straight north. If people visualize this, Lisbon is on the Atlantic side, about halfway uh, be between the north and the south of um of Portugal. So you would basically be going straight north up through Porto and then into Galicia and finally ending at the uh, at the termination point. 
Can you describe for folks what that terrain is like? You kind of alluded to this. This isn't a walk in the woods. You're not hiking through the forest. But what is the terrain like during this walk? And um, how long did it take you? And how many miles or kilometers did you do each day? Yeah, firstly, just the point that you made about walking north is actually more relevant and interesting than you would think. Because when you're walking the Camino Frances, the main way, and really most of the routes in Spain, you're walking west. Right, right. And the reason that that's interesting is that you're walking in the morning, typically, typically pilgrims will get up and just go really early in the morning. And so the sun is behind you all the time. Uh, and that creates some interesting suntans, you know, the back of your legs get you know crazy <laughs> tanned or crazy burned. And then the, the front side of you doesn't get any sun at all. Uh, and so, yeah, walking the Portuguese route, yeah, it's a little bit different. You have the, the sun kind of to your right. Uh, during that morning walk and then coming behind you, you know, as you get towards midday. Uh, so that was a little bit, that was a little bit different actually. So the terrain is really varied, you know, on, on all Camino routes. Um, what is, is always done and, and I think everybody really appreciates it is that they try to route you through the most scenic or the most picturesque areas where that's possible. And sometimes that means that you have to walk a little bit longer. Uh, instead of walking, you know, on a, on a road that might be busy with some traffic, you know, there might be a forest nearby and you'll kind of detour through the forest because that's nicer. Um, and, you know, it might take a little bit longer, but I think people will, will take that deal. Um, so in Portugal specifically, you're walking through a variety of different uh, terrains. There's uh, a lot of vineyards and olive groves that you walk through. That's really probably the most oh, nice. picturesque part. And the vineyards really extend throughout Portugal um, and even into Spain, you know, even up to Galicia where it's not warm and it doesn't have that Mediterranean climate um, like, you know, a lot of the rest of Spain. So we saw vineyards probably most days and sometimes you're just walking right through them. Uh, it was during September, so it was the harvest in, in some areas and we saw really local cultivation uh, going on, family kind of uh, picking of grapes and that was really nice. One thing that people probably aren't aware of unless they walk Caminos is that in Spain and Portugal there are a lot of eucalyptus plantations. Oh. The first time we walked the Camino we were really surprised to see it and kind of you know, me being from Australia originally, I kind of looked the first time we were in one and said, these are eucalyptus trees. What are they doing here? This is familiar. Yeah, this is familiar. There's no koalas, but there's eucalyptus trees. Right? <laughs> and so in Portugal, we found on this Camino, we saw a lot of eucalyptus plantations. And, you know, that you walk through them a lot and it's not as nice as the vineyards and it's not as nice as natural forests, but it's certainly better than walking on a, on a road with cars or something like that. So, um, you know, that can be at least pleasant to walk through as well, even though it is a, a, a plantation. And although we did speak to some Portuguese uh, pilgrims who said it was the, the bane of Portugal or something like that were these eucalyptus plantations because they, I think, planted them oh. in, the, in the 70s or the 80s you know, en masse. And they burn very easily. And we've had problems with forest fires in, in Portugal, uh, you know, in recent years. Oh, interesting. Which we also have in Australia, of course. So, you know, there might yeah, be something right. to that. And we actually walked through a burnt out uh, eucalyptus forest on this Camino, which was quite um, quite poignant because it was you could tell it had only been a week or two since the since the fire because you could smell it and and you could see it was really um, quite recent. You know, I remember years and years and years ago, I took an afternoon in Northern California, right around the same time that you're talking about in early fall, and I was bicycling around, and it was during the harvest. And I was just overwhelmed with the smell of the grapes. You know, normally you bike through, you go through a vineyard, you don't really smell the grapes. But after harvest, you know, the grapes have fallen on the ground, people have tramped on them. So there's this smell of grapes 
everywhere, <laughs> everywhere I was riding. Did you have the same experience when you were walking the Camino? I can't really say that I did, but it sounds like something that I maybe should have uh, paid more attention to. <laughs> I don't think I have a really great sense of smell. Um, and But the other thing in terms of being the harvest season, um, which was really amazing, were that the figs were in harvest. And we would pass oh, yeah. on the, on the, because you're walking a lot on these sort of country paths, you know, country lanes, that kind of thing. And we would pass these, these trees, just random fig trees that weren't, didn't belong to anybody. They weren't specifically planted. They would just be on the side of the road with ripe figs, completely ripe figs. And we just picked them off the trees and just ate them. We ate just dozens of them every day, basically for a period of about one week. Oh, that's fantastic. But you would also just so see hundreds of them just on the ground. And so we knew that you know, we, that wasn't being actively cultivated. You know, we weren't sort of stealing anybody's figs. Um, <laughs> they were just there, but it was, it was amazing. Uh, you're going on a religious pilgrimage, Nick. You don't want to ruin it by, uh, resorting to thievery. <laughs> Probably not, but we made sure that the figs weren't behind fences. You know, we weren't climbing up ladders and stuff to get them. <laughs> So I think that brings up a good topic because, you know, generally on this podcast, we're talking about being in a particular city and trying the food there. But when you're on this long term hike, you know, you've got to outfit yourself with a certain amount of food. I mean, it's not like you're in the wilderness for weeks on end, but certainly you're out hiking for long periods of time. You have to bring water, of course. What other kinds of food and snacks are a good thing to bring when you're hiking the Camino? Yeah, we, as a rule, tend to bring probably more food than most. I mean, in most Caminos, especially if you're on the Camino Frances or one of the main Caminos where there's a lot of infrastructure for pilgrims and you know every few kilometers there'll be some kind of bar or restaurant so you could get by apart from water you could get by without really bringing much um, and I would say most people would stop for lunch would find a place to stop for lunch um, we tend not to do that Wendy and I because well, for a few different reasons but we tend to bring a, a lunch and so it's obviously very easy in Spain and Portugal to buy bread um, you know and so we'll get fresh bread in the morning and then we'll have things like uh, tomatoes avocados uh, we'll bring a trail mix as well if we can get um, because we're vegans if we can get some kind of uh, smoked tofu or something like that um, we'll bring that and so we tend to kind of make sandwiches uh, for lunch and then we'll eat out, you know, at a restaurant uh, for dinner. What we also do sometimes is some of the supermarkets in Spain and Portugal will have, you know, ready-made kind of a couscous salad or something like that in their fresh food section. And so you can buy that if you plan the day before or if you know that you're going to pass a supermarket along the way. And so you can buy something like that and eat it. And the reason that we like doing that is it just allows us to stop wherever we like on the trail, if at a certain point we're tired and we, you know, just feel like we need a break, we can just stop wherever we want. And sometimes that allows you to stop at really nice places if you're at a, a medieval bridge or in a nice forest with a nice mm. uh, bench or something like that. Then you can kind of stop wherever you want. So we really like doing that. Um, but yeah, you know, typical trail mix, fry, uh, dried fruits, nuts, uh, you know, biscuits, things like that. I'm a big advocate for picnicking while traveling. And this is kind of that same idea. You know, I, I always say, go to the market, get some fresh bread. You know, you put some avocados on it, like you said, you find some fresh figs along the way. Now I would, I would add in maybe a, a glass of wine. Of course, you're not going to do that while you're uh, trekking <laughs> for miles on end every day, but this sounds like a spectacular way to eat during the day. 
people, if you eat at a restaurant, even for lunch, as you're walking, um, you'll typically have, you know, the pilgrim menu, like a menu del dia, where it will often come with wine. Um, and so people, you know, you might have a glass or two and then think, oh, God, I've still got to walk, you know, three hours, you know, in the afternoon or, right. four or whatever it is. Uh, so some people struggle a little bit with that. <laughs> I couldn't do it. There's no way. Um, after lunch, you know, I, I love taking a taking a little siesta, taking a little nap afterwards if I have a couple glasses of wine. You know, you, you hike during the day. Uh, I guess the question is, how many miles do you go per day on average? Yeah, it varies according to according to different pilgrims, of course, and according to different routes. Um, Wendy and I, on average, walk about 25 kilometers a day. Uh, that's around 15, 16 miles, I think. Um, wow. And so that's, you know, you're typically looking at about four to five kilometers per hour with no stops. You know, and we obviously make our stops, have rests, sometimes stop for photos. You know, if you walk through a village, you might stop and go into the church and et cetera, et cetera. So, you know, we tend to walk. I mean, it does vary day by day, but we usually leave, you know, sort of seven in the morning ish. And we usually arrive by about two in the afternoon. I mean, that's kind of a, a rough guide. If you're walking the Camino Frances, the main route, because there are so many villages that have accommodation, you can really just choose day by day how much you want to walk. If one day you feel good, you think, okay, I want to keep going, I'm in a good rhythm, you go a little bit further because you know that there's accommodation in the next town. And on another day, if you think it's quite hot and I don't have a lot of energy, you know, you can walk a bit less. On some of the less popular routes, there's a lot greater distance between the accommodation options, so you don't really have that choice. You kind of know starting out your day, okay, it's 27 kilometers to the next viable place to stay that night. So that's that's what my day is. You're kind of locked into that. And you started in Lisbon, your home base, and you went all the way up to um, the, final, the final city. And how many days did it take you to actually accomplish this feat? So it took 32 days. Uh, the distance... Technically, you know, there's a lot of debate over distances in the Camino de Santiago, but technically the distance from Lisbon is 610 to 615 kilometers. Wow. You know, what you find is that, of course, if you, say, walk at one particular stage and you might end in a town, and if it's a historic town, then in the afternoon you might go out exploring the town, suddenly you're adding a lot more, you know, kilometers to your day as well. Um, and so in the end, you know, according to the way I, I tracked it, you know, we went more than 100 kilometers more than the actual uh, official number just based on little detours that you do and, and things like that. Um, so yeah, we tried, we did it a little bit. We sort of tried to do 20 kilometers or so. Wendy has some problems with plantar fasciitis in her feet. Uh, so we tried to pick shorter days where that was possible. Um, so you can do it in, in less time. You know, we've seen stage uh, descriptions for this Camino from Lisbon, which are about 26 days. So that would be six days less than what we took. But on the other hand, we like being on Camino. We enjoy it. So it's not a race. And, you know, if it takes right. a bit longer, that's also we enjoy that as well. You know, one other question about the actual Camino itself is uh, I've seen pictures and videos and movies and people are often carrying a scallop shell off of their backpack uh, during the walk. 
What is the significance of this uh, scallop shell that you see? Yeah, it's a, it's basically the symbol of uh, the Camino because and it's related to back to St. James uh, himself. And so essentially all, not all, but most pilgrims will carry it and it just marks you out uh, as that as, as a pilgrim. And what's really interesting in Spain is that because the Camino is, is very much a part of the culture of the country, even if you're on one of these remote routes and you might be nowhere near Santiago, but if you have that shell, that kind of identifies you as... Uh, as a pilgrim, and so people will often, you know, wish you buen camino, wish you, a, a, you know, a good trip, um, because they see the shell and they know that that's what that means and that that's where you're going. Um, so yeah, it's it's nice to have this uh, to have this symbol. Nick, you mentioned that you know there's this infrastructure in place on the different caminos. Some it's more of an infrastructure than other places, but uh, you know, kind of describe what it's like when you come to the end of a day. What are the different kinds of accommodations that you might encounter along the way? There has to be a wide range of them, right? Yeah, for sure. The most basic level accommodation is what's called an albergue. So this is like a hostel. What we call it is a pilgrim hostel. And so in albergues, typically you're sleeping in shared accommodation and shared dormitory rooms. So that's the the base level of pilgrim accommodation. And then there are some albergues where there are private rooms that you can get as well. Uh, And so, you know, if you're on a budget... Or if you just want that experience, that's typically what you would do. And that's that's where we stay most of the time. Uh, it certainly did offer in this last Camino a different element uh, given the pandemic, that there were far fewer mm. uh, pilgrims. And also because of social distancing, it wasn't really uh, encouraged. And a lot of the albergues had limits. They were only at half capacity in terms of their dormitory rooms uh, rather than full right, capacity right. Um, just to limit the number of people in the same room. And often they would just give us a, a, a private room or just give us a room and say, we're not going to put anybody else in this room, even though there's more beds, just to separate people from each other. So that was nice. And so on this last Camino, we only a couple of times were in rooms with with other people. But, you know, that can be a great way to meet people in, in a non-pandemic year um, because, you know, everybody kind of gathers at the albergues at the end of the day and you can talk about your your your, your stage and how you're, in, you know, swap your stories about the Camino and things like that. So that's often where you have a lot of the social interaction of the Caminos in these albergues. So that was something that we missed quite a lot on this last um on this last pilgrimage this year, but there are also a, a range. Again, it depends on the Camino that, that you're on, but there are on the Camino Frances, the most popular one, there's more likely to be, you know, hotels that are some upscale, but not necessarily upscale, but just a level up from, from the albergue where you can have a private room and a private bathroom and things like that. There are also what they call casas rurales, so a rural house, you know, it might not be in a village necessarily, but it might be kind of on the trail, but you know, kind of a rustic, uh, sort of hotel type place. So they're really, yeah, I mean, as you said, all kinds of options depending on what you're interested in or what your budget is or, you know, what experience you want to have. Let's talk about the albergues as far as uh, food goes. What would a meal be like once you've uh, you finished for the day, you've swapped stories, you've compared blisters on your feet, and now you're ready for something to eat? What, what would the food be like here? Yeah, you have a couple of options uh, at the albergues themselves. A lot of them have kitchens. Uh, and so you can cook and that can also be something that's really nice in terms of uh, camaraderie or, you know, social interaction with other people. You know, if you're because a lot of people form what they call Camino families, you know, where you might meet someone on the first day and you might be walking similar stages. So you kind of walk with them, you know, for, for the coming days or weeks. And then if you stay at the same place, you know, maybe you'll decide to do a group 
a group meal, you know, maybe you'll rotate who cooks, you know, each night or, or something like that. Uh, and so that's a, a, usually a possibility. Unfortunately, this year, a lot of the albergues, when some of them weren't even open, but the ones that were open, uh, their kitchens were closed just for, you know, for health and safety reasons during the pandemic. So that wasn't really an option this time. In normal years, what the albergues also do, some of them is that they'll offer a communal dinner um, as well, where they'll cook for you and you'll pay an extra you know, an extra fee and it won't be that much. It's usually 10 euros per person or something like that. And, you know, that's also another great way to meet people and to, you know, sit around a table and, and share a meal together. And then the final option is that you can go out and, and eat out. Um, I mean, usually in these, especially if you're talking about the Camino Frances, there's a, usually a kind of typical end of stage destination you know, for each stage. I mean, you can choose what stages you walk, but typically people walk more or less the same stages. And, you know, the end of stage destination is maybe a larger village, which has some restaurants or it has, you know, more options in, in that way. Um, and so, you know, in a lot of these places, there are restaurants that cater specifically to the pilgrim trade because there's so many pilgrims, um, you know, on this main route on the Camino Frances. And some of these little villages especially are kept alive by that. You know, you'll see yeah. some villages where the villages seem like they're kind of dying, except they might have one Alberta and one restaurant or something like that. And you can see that that they're surviving off the pilgrim trade, which is sad to see on the one hand, but good to see that at least something is is keeping those villages going. Now, you mentioned earlier that you are vegan. Your wife, Wendy, is a vegan as well. Did you find it difficult to eat as a vegan person? while uh, traveling on the Camino? Typically, we haven't had problems with that. I mean, we travel widely anyway. Um, and so we've been to you know many places that are less vegan friendly than a country like Spain. Um, you know, we, especially Wendy tends to have a really positive attitude. She loves seeking out the local specialties and, and trying to find, you know, what vegan options there are. And you know, it depends a lot on your on your attitude. If you come in with a positive attitude like that, and you look for for things, then um, you know, if you look for abundance, you'll you'll find abundance. I guess. Uh, you know, we've had other people who have told us that they really struggled, or that you know the Camino is a vegan wasteland and things like that. And that hasn't been our experience, but I think it does depend a little bit on how you look at it. We speak Spanish pretty well, and that helps a lot as well. Um, you know, I would say being aware of the local cuisine helps you know you might be in a village in the middle of nowhere in spain you're not going to go to a restaurant and say can you make me a, a thai curry you know because <laughs> with tofu or something because they're not going to have those ingredients or or know how to make that or know what that is right um you know it's not like being in a, a city like um you know austin texas or portland oregon or something where you can just go and get vegan stuff wherever you want but you know if you work within that cuisine then you know, people tend to be quite receptive to it. You know, so in Spain, you can get something as simple as a parrilla de verduras, which is just a plate of grilled vegetables. And any restaurant in Spain can do it. And it sounds perhaps like it's boring, but it's actually amazing because the quality of the vegetables is so good. The olive oil is so good. Uh, and so you get, you know, this, this wonderful plate of, of vegetables, which is actually really nice. You can get a paella that's uh, made with vegetables as well. Uh, and so, you know, they do a lot of bean dishes and, and soups and things like that. So as long as you're kind of aware of those sorts of things, um, you know, if you go to a restaurant and there doesn't happen to be anything vegan or vegetarian on the menu, you know, you can try to see, can they work within their cuisine to, to make something for you? And we find a lot of times that the chefs sometimes will be excited a little bit by that because they're kind of making the same food every day. And if you come in and say, right, can you do something a little bit different? Then, you know, it's something uh, different for them too. 
you're hiking the uh, Camino and you get to your final destination, Santiago de Campostela, which, you know, you've talked about being in these trails. They're relatively rural, but Santiago de Campostela, it's a city. What is it like when you've been hiking for 32 days and you finally reach this destination, this endpoint? Yeah, it's a bittersweet kind of experience. You know, people, especially for the first time, it's people are a little bit apprehensive or they don't really know what to expect. And that was certainly the case for me as well the first time, you know, because the Camino de Santiago, it's, it's this sort of classic example of the journey being the destination, right? And so right, it's, right. It, it, yes, on the one hand, you're going to this specific place at the end, but it's, it's all about what happens, you know, along the way. Um, so when you're approaching it, you're you're excited that you're arriving you know you've been walking for you know for 30 something days to get there uh but on the other hand you know that it means you have to stop walking and that's sad because unless you're really hurting with blisters and with uh you know foot injuries and things you're usually you know you'd love to keep walking if you could so it's sort of hard to know you know for some people they say it's it's a little bit underwhelming because santiago i mean i think santiago is really nice but it's you know, certainly it's not Madrid or it's not Barcelona, right? It's a, what we would call right, a right. small city in Spain. And even on the Camino Frances, you, you do pass through Burgos and Lyon, which are larger cities and more famous sort of cities for tourism and whatnot. So, you know, you come, the, the cathedral is the main focus of Santiago. There's a very large square right in front of the cathedral. And that's kind of the, the end point, you know, you, you sort of, all these pilgrims kind of flood into this square and then you might just kind of hang out there and wait. You might see some other pilgrims who you've met along the way um, and, you know, you congratulate them for arriving. I mean, it's very festive. Everyone's very excited to arrive. Um, it's unfortunate in the last few years that there's been a lot of scaffolding on the cathedral because this coming year, 2021, is a holy year in Santiago. And so they're trying to, you know, to renovate the cathedral for that. You know, so, so there is a little bit of a, of mixed emotions, you know, when you get there. Um, but I think Santiago is a, is a great little city, you know, beyond the cathedral, there's a lot of other things to explore. We stayed there, I think, three nights this year. And we always try and stay a couple of days just to, you know, firstly, because you want to relax a little bit, because uh, you get to stop walking. But also, you know, there's lots of little interesting um, places to explore and you know Galicia in general is this very unusual part of Spain and I'd never been there before walking the first Camino that we walked a few years ago and you hear Galicia described as this Celtic land which has some connection with places like Scotland and Ireland and that doesn't sound at all like the Spain that that I knew when you think about places right. like Andalusia and you think about sure. you know, the Mediterranean and this kind of thing. It just seemed impossible that there could be a part of Spain really like this, but there really is. And, and even culturally, you know, and I don't think this is made up at all. Uh, there's bagpipe playing uh, in Galicia. You hear that uh, in oh, Santiago. Cool. Sometimes people will play it on the trails as well, which is really nice. Um, <laughs> awesome. And, you know, there's Celtic symbols and, you know, you can buy, okay, there's souvenirs, but you can, you know, but this is embedded into, into this culture as well. So it's a different part of Spain. And when you're walking, especially the Camino Frances, the main route, that's one of the great things about it, I think, is you start in the Pyrenees, then you keep walking west and you go through areas like La Rioja, which is famous for its wines and its vineyards. Then you go into an area which is known as the Meseta between uh, Burgos and Lyon, where you walk through wheat fields for basically eight or nine consecutive days, uh, about 180 hmm. kilometers of wheat fields, where you just see almost nothing. You see the horizon and the sky and the wheat fields, and that's it. 
Um, wow. And then you start getting into areas with, with little villages and stone and slate villages. And finally, you enter Galicia. It's very green. There's lots of forests. It rains a lot. And so it's a, an, another completely different area. So you're going through all of these different regions. And finally, you get to the end and you can kind of, you know, you might not appreciate the changes hour by hour because you're walking because you're walking right because you're going so slowly from one region to the other but when you come to the end you look back and think about all the different types of landscapes and regions that you walk through and you can see the differences between them all and so coming to santiago that gives you another element of that so i'm always interested in the food culture of a particular place galicia is a place i've had on my list for a while have not made it there yet just because of these interesting um, combinations of cultures that you already spoke about um, so eloquently, Nick. But tell me about the food in Santiago. What can we expect when we go to visit Santiago? I mean, you have in, in Spain, you know, you tend to think, and in these old European countries, you know, we, uh, maybe in Anglophone countries, tend to identify Spanish cuisine or Italian cuisine as one single mm -hmm. thing. But of course, it's very regional, right. um, as you mentioned. So in Galicia, uh, probably the most famous thing in Galicia is, is octopus. Um, and it's very common throughout Spain, and it's it's called pulpo. And so you'll see it elsewhere in Spain as pulpo gallego, so from octopus from Galicia, like it's a specific style. And so if you go to a tapas bar in Madrid, for example, you can find uh, usually uh, this Galician style octopus. So that's uh, certainly the most famous thing. Uh, there's a, a cake which is a. a Tarta de Santiago is like a Santiago uh, cake, um, which is a, a dessert. And so that's um, very common and, and popular as well. Um, and other than that, yeah, you just have all of these influences, you know, from the rest of Spain. You know, tapas is, is obviously uh, popular. And, and, you know, because you're pretty close to the ocean, yeah, you maybe have more seafood than you would in central areas like Madrid. And is Galicia a wine growing region? Did you try any wine in Santiago? It is because we were still passing vineyards even the day that we walked into Santiago this, this last day, but it's not, no, it's not known for that. I don't remember if we tried any specifically local wines, um, but the, the climate isn't really suited to it, even though, yeah, like I said, they do have vineyards, but it does rain a lot and it's a lot cooler than in, in some other areas. So it's not famous for wine. They do have some liqueurs. We bought back a liqueur, which was uh, kind of Camino themed. It had this uh, nice Camino label on it, uh, which was a, maybe a gimmick that, that we fell for, but we bought a, a bottle of liqueur right, and right. brought it back. Um, but, you know, you can get other, other Spanish wines, of course. Nick Leonard, it's just been great talking to you about the Camino de Santiago. Best of luck to you and your wife, Wendy, with the podcast and your future travels. And we'll look forward to seeing you again on the uh, podcast. It's just been awesome speaking to you. All right. Thank you. It's been a lot of fun. Okay, there you go. Nick Leonard's podcast and website is called Spirit of the Camino. I've got links to those in the show notes. Go to radiomisfits.com to get that, or just use your Google generator. That's it for this week. Next week, we are in Tuscany for wine and pasta and the historic city of Florence. Until then, get over to destinationeatdrink.com. My latest blog post is about living the dream, and a mural in Hawaii that really spoke to me. Destination Eat Drink is distributed by the Radio Misfits Podcast Network and lead hiker on the Camino, Ed Silla. Thanks, Ed. I'm Brent Peterson. Wear your effing mask, and I'll see you down the road. Join us next week for another culinary adventure on Destination Eat Drink, a presentation of the Radio Misfits Podcast Network.